Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today's episode is a grab bag where we discuss an important topic in military justice. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding a criminal trial, and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Criminal Law Department's first episode of the Military Justice Grab Bag Podcast. The purpose of today's podcast is to provide the practitioners in the field a few updates to the Army Sexual Assault Prevention Response Program to ensure that they are properly advising their commanders with relevant and timely advice. I'm Captain Adam Kostick, and with me today is... Major Josh Mickelson. Sir, do you mind telling the field a little bit about the changes to restricted reports that was reflected in the Department of Defense Instruction 6495.02? Yeah, of course. Um, So one of the big changes that came uh, in November of 2021 is the change to the restricted reporting paradigm. And just for background information, uh, just take a second to explain. So unrestricted reports, uh, those of us that do what we do. We know that those are the ones that we are most likely uh, to encounter in the field. And those unrestricted reports are the ones that get immediately reported to CID and get investigated and essentially will bring in all the victim services that are on an installation. Um, The restricted report is designed to allow a victim to still get certain victim services, such as medical, uh, you know, behavioral health, Uh, legal services, uh, sharp services, uh, but allow them to keep that confidential. And so it gives them time to take care of themselves, but also not create an investigation. Uh, With the change that happened uh, at the end of 2021, it kind of shifts this. And so uh, it used to be that if a victim was to tell a third party, a friend, a family member, someone else that they work with, and then that third party later reported it uh, to someone else, they lost the ability to file a restricted report. It would be an automatic unrestricted and they would get kind of sucked into the system as a victim, whether or not they wanna participate. Uh, So what this change does is it restores that ability uh, to still file a restricted report, even if someone else reports for them or even and this is critical because this is uh, kind of con- uh, contradictory to what we're used to. Even if they were to tell the command themselves, they can still file a restricted report. Uh, the only way they lose that option is if they were to tell law enforcement themselves, so if they personally report, or if they already file a unrestricted report. Uh, because you can never restrict an unrestricted. You can only unrestrict a restricted. And so that's a, that's a big change. And so to kind of hammer this home, uh, we now have uh, a system where a victim, say, uh, you know, whoever in a command can go and report to their commander and say, hey, ma'am, uh, last night I was sexually assaulted by this soldier at this place with these witnesses. Um, and the big takeaway for those advising commanders especially is, uh, this doesn't change the command responsibility to report to CID. Now, it may or may not initiate what they call an independent investigation, where CID, CID will take whatever information that the third party knows 
and started an investigation without uh, contacting the the victim, and they won't. They will also be restricted from being able to get any uh, sex sex assault forensic exam if one was done at the emergency room. So those are the two things. The the investigation will go on. They'll follow whatever leads they have uh, if they know the offender. Uh, but there will be this restricted report. Yes, sir. And I think it's important to note for the SVCs in the field that this independent investigation does not in of itself convert the restricted report to an unrestricted report. So everything you just said, that's the language that's directly in the instruction. And so the SVCs can ensure that their clients know that and they're not afraid of what may happen now that the command has found out about their report. That is absolutely correct. And then in that same vein with restricted reporting, I want to talk briefly about the CATCH program. So the CATCH program has been around since 2019. Uh, but I think it's important to, uh, c- to talk about it because it's not very well understood. Um, so what it is is if they file a restricted report, and it's also been expanded to unrestricted reports to use the same, same database, but uh, the design is for restricted reports, uh, then the restricted reporter uh, will, be, will essentially get a unique identifier, so to speak, uh, from the SARC, the Sex Assault um, Response Coordinator. And they will go online and they will essentially fill out uh, information, which will go into a database that is controlled or managed by CID. Now, their name is not associated with the report in the database, but it goes out, looks for the same offender in other reports. And if there is a positive match, then CID will send that back to the SARC that essentially initiated the, the report. And the SARC will then speak with the victim or the reporter uh, and tell them, hey, there was a positive report or there was a there's a essentially there's another case that your offender is uh, involved in. Would you like to unrestrict your previously restricted report and the the numbers on that? So we're seeing some uh, actual success with this. So the whole point of the program is designed to get serial offenders. Right. And so Uh, In the last FY that it was reported, so that would be fiscal year 21, there were 471 entries into the CATCH program. And of those 471 entries, there were actually 24 positive results. So that's 24 cases in which uh, the subject was implicated in two separate sex assaults. Speaking of the CATCH program and law enforcement, what other type of requirements rest with the command as part of the Army Directive 2022-13 from September of 22? Yeah, thanks, Adam. So the change there with uh, both monthly updates and disposition updates is the big change, the big takeaway is that the brigade commander is required to provide those updates. And I would kind of Uh, show my math on this a little bit. So back in 2020, 600-20 was updated. And prior to the update, the requirement rested with battalion commanders. And a lot of us are still familiar with that. And it said the battalion commander was required to update uh, a victim of sex assault within 72 hours of a SARB, essentially. When that was updated in 2022, it removed the battalion commander language and replaced it with the language that's reflected in the DOTI, uh, which says immediate commander. And there was a short time in the Army when we were confused about what does immediate commander mean. I think for most of us, for you, what would you think immediate commander is? The company commander. Right, that makes the most sense, right? Because they're the ones that are closest to uh, the soldier. 
well, Big Army disagrees, uh, and they said, no, that's the brigade commander. And initially, they published this in an Army directive in 2021 and then republished it in the one that you referenced in 2022. Uh, and what that says is that in addition to the monthly uh, update requirement uh, within 72 hours of each SARB, brigade commanders will also notify the soldier complainant within two business days of receiving the final outcome of any judicial, non-judicial, or administrative proceedings. And this next line is the one that always surprises commanders. This duty is not delegable. And so they've pinned the rows on the brigade commander or their 06 equivalent uh, to make sure those updates are happening. Now, there is some discussion on whether or not uh, those updates have to be in person or not. There's nothing that definitively says that, but there are some practice tips, right? Like brigade commanders should be reaching out or having their BJAs reach out to SVC or victim advocates to try to open up those lines of communication and try to figure out, hey, how does the victim want to receive this? That's kind of the best practice. Um, in addition to that, there's been uh, some additional clarity given on, well, what is owed in those disposition updates? Because for a long time, you know, as a former SVC, there was always this discussion about, well, what would the Privacy Act allow us to share with a victim with regards to uh, a, def you know, a subject and accuse a defendant's uh, respondent's uh, official, the official action? Well, um, we have some clarity on that. So in the TJAG policy memo 22-07, um, it references the NDAAs from FY20 and FY22. Uh, in addition to that, it literally says, or specifically says that the Privacy Act does not apply to these disposition updates. And so any disposition update uh, for an Article 15, for non-judicial non punishment, for an administrative separation, or any other admin action, uh, TJAG has given, or OTJAG has given the uh, opinion that the Privacy Act will not apply. And that echoes what's said in the NDAAs. Now, specifically, I think this is important for our BJAs out there that are uh, advising these brigade commanders, what is required? So the NDAAs uh, state that, hey, when you're giving these final disposition updates, it says, quote, the commander shall notify the victim of the type of action taken on such case, the outcome of the action to include any punishments assigned or characterization of service as applicable and any such other information as the commander determines to be relevant. And so those were always the sticky points like, hey, can we say they got an Article 15 and what the punishment is? Or can we say that they got administratively separated and what the characterization is? And so this uh, TJAG policy memo in conjunction with the NDAAs and the directive that you referenced gives us some additional clarity for our brigade commanders and BJAs. And there were some updates, not just with disposition discussions with the victim, but also with military protective orders. Do you mind discussing a little bit about who has to notify the victim about its existence, when it must be in place, things like that, sir? Yeah, so um, this is in the same uh, Army Directive 2022-13. Uh, so it's kind of an omnibus directive that incorporated all of the previous years. But what it says about MPOs essentially is the brigade commander also has a duty here now. And what that duty is, the brigade commander uh, must be informed and ensure that a military protective order is issued uh, within six hours of one being determined that it's necessary. 
And so when you unpack that a little bit, it's uh, the real requirement is, well, how are commands creating these, um, you know, these CCIRs or these SIRs, these information requirements, to ensure the brigade commander is notified as soon as one uh, is required because they have a six-hour uh, window to make sure that that's issued. And so that's really the difficulty that I foresee commands having is, hey, how do we get information flowing quickly and make that determination? And then the commander can do the check after to ensure one was issued. Sure. And it's and just for clarity, right, the brigade commander does not have to be the one that issues the MPO, but the brigade commander has to ensure that the company commander actually emplaces the order on uh, the subject. Yes, the brigade commander just needs to ensure that the lower, the subordinate command has issued one. So the last thing we wanted to talk about today is collateral misconduct and the safe to report policy. Uh, That references Army Directive 22-10 from last July. Collateral conduct is any victim misconduct that might be in time, place, or circumstance associated with uh, the victim's sexual assault allegation. And so this definition that came out in the Army Directive is much broader than the previous policies, and I was hoping you could discuss a little bit about that for the field. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first and foremost, the definition of collateral misconduct. Uh, you can see that it really doesn't have a definitive start and stop. So it's uh, any misconduct by the victim that might might be in time, place, or circumstance associated. And so what we're seeing from the field now, the difficult questions are, hey, when does the association stop? Because we can have a victim who suffers a trauma after uh, being sexually assaulted and then self-medicates, whether that's alcohol or some other illicit substance. And is that also going to be covered under the collateral misconduct policy, the safe to report policy? And I think that's a tough question for our commanders to determine when that officially begins and stops. But Uh, That's really what this policy gets at, is it puts it in the hands of those 06 commanders to determine that. And I think what's also difficult for them to determine is whether or not that misconduct is minor or not. And that is a new decision the commander has to make when they're also determining whether it's associated with the allegation. Yeah, so essentially the analysis, right, for the the command is step one, is this collateral misconduct? Uh, Does it fit the definition? And then step two, is it minor or non-minor misconduct, as you were uh, alluding to? And so uh, the policy doesn't give a lot of guidance on what is and is not minor. Um, It says that, hey, misconduct that is generally minor may be things such as, you know, underage drinking, inappropriate relationship, um, curfew violations, these type of things. Uh, and then it says, however, these minor, mis- generally minor misconduct could be non-minor if there's aggravating circumstances. You know, someone got hurt, there was uh, property damage, um, it lays out these type of things, but it's non- non-exhaustive. Uh, and then the flip side is, you know, uh, non-minor uh, would be anything outside of that, but it's the complete discretion or deference to the 06 commander's judgment. And the, the reason that's important is because if the commander determines it to be minor misconduct, they can take no negative action against the victim to include flagging, uh, administrative separation, any level of reprimand, and obviously non-judicial punishment, court-martial, anything uh, else as well, but the flagging is the big one. And commanders can still refer uh, the victim to ASAP, SUDSI, mental health, behavioral health treatment, if they believe it's necessary. Um, 
because that's not a punishment. Um, and it's, it's necessary to ensure the health and safety of the victim. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's going to be very fact dependent, right? So, uh, if it is an alcohol related, uh, minor misconduct, uh, I think that warrants, you know, uh, deciding whether or not they need some substance abuse treatment, uh, or, you know, you can see this, but yeah, it's not viewed as a punishment. The other point I'd like to touch on before we leave this topic is just to highlight, uh, the difference between the policy, the previous withholding policy, and this as far as what crimes are covered. And so the previous withholding policy, I, th I think it was 2012, it came out from the SECDEF that uh, withholds uh, penetrative sexual assaults to the uh, Special Court Martial Convening Authority for initial disposition, also withheld collateral misconduct to the same level but that was just penetrative sexual assaults. And so I wanna point out that this policy covers all sex assaults, both penetrative and contact offenses. And so you could very well have uh, a contact offense where the 06 is not the initial disposition authority, barring any local withholding policy, but the 06 is the uh, disposition authority for the safe to report policy. I think that's an interesting nuance. Sir, before we break for the day, what do you think the biggest takeaway from this episode, these policy updates to the SAPR program are for our practitioners? Yeah, if I was to put it in a nutshell, it's the increased involvement for 06 commanders, right? Our brigade level commanders. Uh, when you look at the requirement to be involved in MPO notifications, the requirement to brief victims, uh, both monthly and with the disposition, and then with the safe to report, the burden they carry to make that decision between minor and non-minor, uh, it, it's significant. And so our brigade commanders need to ensure that they are involved uh, in these cases and taking the, um, are fulfilling their requirements. And then the second one is the, the big change to restricted reporting. We are gonna be in a world where you could have uh, a restricted report that is fully being investigated because of the way the information came out and then the victim uh, has chosen to make a restricted report. And I think it's important that we are ensuring that our commanders understand this and meeting their obligation to ensure they're notifying CID when they learn about information because commanders still must notify CID even if there is a restricted report. And I think this is kind of confusing as we get going. Uh, and try to figure out some of these bumps in the road and iron these wrinkles out. But th those are my two big groups of takeaways. And that last takeaway is very important for the practitioner because you have these competing duties of the commander and it'll be up to the judge advocate to make sure that they are on the right side of that line to prevent any issues or delays in the process. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's Corps, the Department of the Army, or the Department of Defense.